Welcome to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. My name's Laura, and I'm back from a little brief break. If you can find the time or make it, I recommend that you all take a little break, particularly just from social media. It'll completely clear your head. So that's just my two cents for today, and I'll jump right into it. Sources for today include Denver Post, Murderpedia, Official Affidavits, NPR, the WordPress blog Tiny Victims, the book Hello Charlie Letters from a Serial Killer by Charlie Hess and Davin Say, and there also is a Forensic Files episode called Screen Pass about this particular case um, that I'm going to be talking about in the beginning here. Now, today's case takes us back to 1991 in a sprawling, not quite suburban, but not quite rural area of um, Colorado Springs, which was slowly expanding its way out in 1991. And this is a neighborhood of grassy hills near the foot of the Rocky Mountains in an area known as Black Forest, um, named as such by a German immigrant who thought that the area reminded him of the dark pinewood forests of Bavaria. It's a diversely landscaped neighborhood that reaches 8,000 feet in elevation at its highest foothills, and it also features some grassy and dispersed wooded areas typical of front range areas near the Rockies. Each home featured a fair amount of land, and these weren't suburban homes jammed right next to each other. Most sat on five acres or more, um, and most of the areas featured unpaved roads. So that gives you a little bit of a feel for this area. On September 17th, 1991, and I'm going to say here for the record, I've also seen this as September 7th, and I'm not sure why there's that disparity there, but it is. So late September is a time of the year in Colorado where the evenings are getting chilly, and 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church was at home babysitting one of her three siblings. And that was her five-year-old brother, Sage. Heather's parents were Michael and Diane Church, and they were known in the community as typical, respectable people. They weren't outsiders, but they weren't necessarily community figures. Heather attended nearby Falcon Middle School, and two of her brothers were active in Boy Scouts. The family was Mormon and attended the local Mormon church where they were welcome members of a tight Latter-day Saints community. And they lived in this little community of Black Forest. However, maybe not unlike some families, the church's marriage had hit some hard times. And maybe unlike many Mormon marriages in particular, Heather's mother, Diane, had filed for a divorce from Michael the summer of that year. Diane was attending counseling sessions for women, and Michael had moved into Colorado Springs and still worked his job as a metrologist. And it's not a meteorologist, it's someone who studies the science of precise measurement, and he did that for a local high-tech company. Their divorce was set to be finalized at the end of the year, and the house was in kind of a sad limbo that's typical of a changing home life. The house itself was a small four-bedroom modest home that was hidden behind a wooded area at the end of a quarter mile of kind of a poorly maintained dirt road. And imagine in your head just a typical 90s home. It was kind of in this old, um, like sort of southwestern style. It had a peach and turquoise outside and kind of a half, like a, a southwestern 90s decor inside. And it had a half-finished patio in the back that faced some rugged, unlandscaped woods. It's 8.30 p.m. 
on this semi-chilly September evening. And Diane Church is at a homemaking class in town while she awaits her boys in their um, Boy Scout meeting. And Heather is at home with her five-year-old brother, Sage. Heather was eager to follow her mother's instructions because she had a dance for school that she wanted to go to on Friday. And Heather was slightly small for her age, five foot tall, barely 80 pounds, not really a quiet or meek girl, um, but she accentuated her outfit with like a thick rimmed glasses look. And she had this lightly permed hair that was um, typical of that time and had a big costume earrings in her ear quite often. She loved to accentuate her outfits with big costume earrings all, all the time. She studied the violin, but she didn't consider herself to be very good, and she had a level of sarcasm and wit about her, and one story says that she was so eager to participate in a class talent contest that she handed out candy to friends and classmates saying, I don't dance, I don't sing, I don't play an instrument, I don't do cartwheels, but I sure do love candy. So she was a good student, making mostly A's and B's, and she aspired to one day go on her long-awaited Mormon mission trip. So back to that evening in the home, Diane called home to check on her and Sage, and they were sitting in the living room watching an episode of Home Improvement. Sage was up later than usual, but Diane said that they could finish the show, and she hung up after promising to be home by 10. Diane was cautious these days around her daughter, understanding that divorce was affecting her the most as the eldest child in the family. But Heather had remained her usual self to this point, and if she were upset or feeling guilty about her parents' divorce, as many children do, she didn't outwardly show it. Diane arrived home slightly late at 10.15 p.m., and in the back seat were Heather's two other brothers that Diane was driving home from their Boy Scout meeting. As she pulled up, she noticed that most of the house lights were off, which is not entirely unusual as Heather sometimes liked to watch TV in the dark, so she made her way to a sliding glass door and noticed that it was unlocked. She thought maybe Heather let the cat out and forgot to lock the door behind her, and she noticed that the home um, was pretty much still in the same neat order that it usually was, and it was usually very neat, and one thing she noticed was that there was a chair that was leaning against a dining room table. Not entirely odd, but enough to just sort of catch her eye. And she let the two Boy Scouts head to their room that they shared with Sage to get ready for bed, only to have them return and tell her that Sage wasn't in the bed. So she found him in the bed, buried underneath all these sheets and blankets because it had too much bedding on this bed, apparently. And Sage was sleepy and had been asleep for most of the evening. And he didn't say anything to her at this time. So Diane made her way to check on Heather. But Heather wasn't in her bed either. And she just had this weird scare with Sage. So she kind of poked around in the bedding to make sure she wasn't in there. And so she then went about the house calling out and searching for Heather and panic was steadily growing. After not finding her, she made some calls to locals uh, that Heather might go to if there was a problem, but they hadn't seen her. One of the friends that she called told her to go look around the perimeter of the house. So she went and did that and she checked a shed and a playhouse and she still couldn't find her. And the friend immediately came over to help her look. In the meantime, Diane called Amber White, one of Heather's closest friends, who said that she had talked to Heather earlier but hadn't heard from her since. And at this point, she dialed 911. Sheriff's Deputy Les Milligan arrived at 1130 to a home that was milling 
with friends and neighbors all concerned with finding Heather. He took a detailed description of Heather and he took pictures of her and Diane deduced that the earrings that Heather must have been wearing that night um, were this certain pair that she basically had just this set of pairs that she would always be wearing and she picked a pair that um, weren't there. And since her glasses went around, she assumed that she was wearing those as well. The blouse that Diane remembered Heather was wearing was in her hamper. So she frantically inventoried her clothing, trying to determine what she might be wearing. And all she could determine was missing was a Mickey Mouse t-shirt that she often wore to bed, which was another bad sign, meaning that she's out somewhere just in her pajamas. After a ridiculously long time, several hours, the official search for Heather began. And this was back before the time of the Amber Alerts or cell phones possessed by everyone. And missing children, for whatever reason, didn't have the urgency that it does now. And not only that, but all of the friends and family and everyone milling around the property when police arrived didn't help matters either. But anyway, by noon the next day, Heather was still missing. The property was still buzzing with activity and a detective assigned the case um, to another person that had arrived named Mark Finley. And a search and rescue team and bloodhound had been called in. A lab tech also arrived to begin processing the now completely trampled scene. The detective had a lot of questions and Diane had a lot of answers. Heather had never run away before and she wasn't the type to do so. She didn't seem troubled or depressed or angry. She got along well with her dad. No unusual activity had been noted in the days leading up to her disappearing. Heather knew to never open the door to strangers and Heather didn't have a boyfriend. And he picked up on a few things though. She had a bully on the bus who kicked her before. A skinny man with long hair had been over a few months earlier to repair their well and had been showing the kids the well and what he was working on. A few neighboring kids had seen a long white car following the school bus over the past couple of weeks, and a metallic blue car with rust spots had been seen prowling local schools as well as a school in Colorado Springs. But the detective honed in on one lead, the father, Michael Church. According to Diane, he had been physically rough on occasion and had on occasion slapped Heather around, but she insisted that he and Heather had a good relationship. Diane also revealed that Michael was in a divorce recovery workshop himself at the nearby Presbyterian church. Meanwhile, technicians found a rusted watch lying near the driveway and two brand new crisp dollar bills near an old barn a half mile from the home. A search dog named Dixie got Heather's scent and went out past the driveway to the confusion of the investigators who were working on the, the idea that she had been taken by a car out of the driveway. And the dog then hit near a pond that they had searched earlier. By now, the case was upgraded from potential runaway to kidnapping and a trace was put on the family house phone. The house was thoroughly examined and there was a red stain found in Heather's room, but it was determined to be Kool-Aid. A single gold hoop earring was found and her bed sheets were confiscated. And the Mickey Mouse t-shirt that was previously overlooked was found in Heather's hamper. A pile of wet clothing in the laundry area, area was explained with Diane saying that they were quickly used to sop up an overflowing toilet. So Detective Stan Presley was meanwhile heading to the apartment of Michael Church, where he sat with his three sons awaiting a potential call from Heather who knew her dad's apartment phone number. 
Michael Church was visibly upset, began sobbing on occasion, but through his tears, he explained what turned out to be an ironclad alibi for that evening. He left work around five, and then he stopped at the Health Matrix gym, where he was seen working out, and then he drove to the church where he did his divorce recovery workshop, where he was verified to be by many of the people present, and that meeting ended at 9.30. And he drove back to his apartment, where he got a call from a friend, and they continued a conversation that they had had at the gym. And that was a call that was interrupted by a call from Diane to say that Heather was missing. And I don't put too much weight in polygraphs, but Michael did pass a polygraph and was essentially cleared as a suspect. So Diane and the family took to the news and voiced their optimism. Diane said that she felt that Heather was safe somewhere. And she actually said later on that she hoped Heather had been taken by someone who had lost a kid or something and wanted a daughter and had been keeping her safe, which has incidentally happened before with missing children. But the fact remained by this point that Heather had been missing nearly 72 hours. The FBI joined the case on the 19th and a helicopter was brought in on the fourth day to widen the search. Volunteers from the area and Colorado Springs turned out and more than 10,000 flyers were posted all over from Denver to South Pueblo. The Center for Missing and Exploited Children announced plans to distribute posters and local Boy Scout troops helped pass out flyers and photos at an air show at Peterson Air Force Base. A second phone line was installed at the church home for investigator use while the original home line was kept open for a potential call from a kidnapper or Heather herself. Prayer vigils were held and a family friend with a successful marketing company posted a generous $10,000 reward for any information leading to Heather. And the daylight grew shorter and the days grew steadily chillier with even chillier nights and tips ended up being dead ends. A bloodhound picked up a scent by some abandoned railroad tracks, but it didn't go any further than that. Then, upon receiving receiving information that um, may wind up in a lead, Detective Finley remembered noting that one window in the master bedroom was closed and the curtains were askew when he came inside to look at it in the room. And when he examined the window, it was determined that a screen had been replaced in the window the wrong way, and it was actually slightly ajar, and no searcher or tech remembered touching the window or manipulating the screen. And so they got a clear set of three fingerprints not belonging to anyone in the family and they lifted those from the window and they placed them in a national database for the FBI and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and that revealed no suspects. And with that, as is the case of so many who go missing, um, the case died down. Leads stopped coming in, flyers started to become sun bleached and tattered and Heather was nowhere to be found. Her father said that he had days that he imagined Heather alone in the woods calling out for him. And the one thing the family clung to was that one day those fingerprints would reveal what happened. Then two years later, a hiker found a human skull in the woods near Pikes Peak, about 15 miles from the family's home. Other reports say that it was a transient who found the skull, and Diane Church ended up finding out about this discovery by watching the news. And she saw images on the news of someone holding up the skull itself and saying that they believed it was from a young Caucasian female. And 
I'm not clear how exactly they quickly determined all of that from the skull, but they did. And nevertheless, dental records confirmed that it was Heather. And Diane had to watch people on the news with gloves on their hands holding up the skull of her daughter on the news. So the medical examiner concluded that Heather was killed with blunt force trauma to the right rear of her head. And interestingly, a pair of girls' pajamas were found near the skull, but her mother said that they didn't belong to Heather. And even with Heather's fate known, the case still didn't have any leads, but the newly elected El Paso County Sheriff made Heather's case his first priority. And Detective Lou Smith was put under the case, and he turned to the fingerprints as his first and really only source of information for this case. A new fingerprint examiner was brought in named Thomas Carney, and he knew something that apparently not everyone knew. The FBI database did not contain everyone's possible fingerprints in the U.S. who were convicted of a crime. It was just for really major crimes like murder. And he knew that there were multiple databases to search, like those for minor crimes like burglary, many of which are localized to their areas. Now, this isn't to say that the old investigators dropped the ball, but it really shows how easy it is for technology and databases that aren't centralized to confound a case and get a little bit out of hand, especially if we're not keeping up to date. And it took someone much more familiar with the databases to shed light on this. So he contacted every state and system to find their fingerprints. And there were 92 databases in North America that hadn't been searched. And he sent out 92 copies to techs who had access to those databases. So he sent out 92 copies of the fingerprints to all of these people. And after two additional years, wouldn't you know it, they found a match. The fingerprints matched 42-year-old Robert Brown, who had been arrested in Louisiana and California for car theft, but he had never been charged with murder. And they discovered that Robert Brown lived just a quarter mile from the church family at the time that Heather disappeared. And they put Robert Brown under surveillance and arrested him. And he was surprisingly easy to come, and he seemed really resigned to being arrested. Almost like a, I was waiting on you guys to come around sort of attitude. Why are your fingerprints out there, Robert? My fingerprints aren't out there. I'm guaranteeing you that I ain't lying to you. Your fingerprints are there. Do you want me to show you the, the document that identifies your I, fingerprints? What I want you to do is fingerprint me again and have somebody who knows what they're doing compare. We've had four people that know what they're doing compare them. They need to do it again. I mean, you know, I've got the same fingerprints I've had all my life. Investigators believed Robert Brown, who had a history of burglary, came upon this dark house with no car in the garage and believed that no one was home. He entered through the window where he left his prints. Heather probably heard the noise and went in to investigate, and Brown ran after her after she ran, and he struck her over the head with a blunt object. He then drug her out the front door into his car and dumped her where she was later found. Curiously, he ended up pleading guilty to Heather's murder for a reduced sentence, which is life in prison without parole. But this isn't the end of Robert Brown's story, because it continues and possibly involves Dozens of other murders, many of which are in Colorado. He admitted to murdering a woman named Rocio Sperry, a Colorado Springs woman who disappeared mid-November 1987 while her husband was away in Florida. 
Robert confessed to killing her and dumping her body in a dumpster and her body was never found. And before Robert confessed to killing her, her case went cold and was considered to be a missing person with no real suspicion of foul play or um, basically any evidence of homicide whatsoever. The unidentified pajamas led investigators to suspect that there are other victims around. One might say Diane could have mistaken the pajamas and they did belong to Heather, but I'll post pictures of these pajamas. They're a really old fashioned pajama set with a floral pattern and pants and a matching long sleeve top that has a collar and basically just old fashioned kind of pajamas, not something that you wouldn't know that your 13 year old daughter owned or had ever worn. And I know people wear these kinds of sets still, but I don't see them being super popular with a 13 year old girl. So I do believe there's someone else's pajamas entirely. Robert Charles Brown wound up confessing to 48 murders. And one he confessed he did while serving with the US military in South Korea. And I'll touch back on that later. All of these confessions that ended up surfacing were largely due to years of efforts from three retirees who were recruited in 2002 by El Paso County Sheriff's Department as volunteers. And one is a name I already said, Lou Smith, a former El Paso investigator who worked on the Heather Church case. And the other two men were Charlie Hess and Scott Fisher, a retired policeman and a former newspaper publisher. Kind of um, out of fun and curiosity, they began a campaign of using their interrogation and communication skills to try to get more information out of Robert Charles Brown while he was in prison for life for the murder, murder of Heather Church. And it was on the back of a lot of people's minds, like I said, that this murder of Heather Church wasn't his only murder. And if he can just so flippantly kill a child while trying to burgle a home instead of just running out when he saw someone was home, there's probably a lot more going on in the many states that Robert Brown had lived in. And Brown himself had expressed these ideas when he sent a rambling and taunting letter to investigators himself in 2000, in some bid for attention, maybe, where he hinted at committing many more murders. So a massive, dark, to put it, sort of childishly, pen pal program was launched between these three retirees and Robert Brown in jail. And every single letter that they got from him, they would sit around a table and review it and try to pick out information from between the lines. And they would send him back a letter with a combination of their thoughts, being careful to not express judgment against Brown or disgust, because then he would clam up and probably not talk to them anymore. So here's an example of a part of a typical exchange written in an article from NBC News. Brown said, I will not hand it to authorities on a golden platter with nothing to gain from my efforts. There are eight other states that may be interested. Colorado only has nine points of interest. Louisiana has 17. Dispatch and disposal may have taken place in Colorado, but procurement may have taken place elsewhere. Brown wrote that in December of 2002. And Charlie Hess wrote back, I do not believe I would put the details on a gold platter without first receiving the assurances you consider important. On the other hand, it makes one wonder why you wrote it in the first place. So Robert, where do we go from here? And months later, Brown wrote back, try the missing persons files on a young army wife. 
and six months later, Brown confessed to that murder I mentioned of Rocio Sperry in Colorado Springs. Turns out she was a 15-year-old army bride who, as I said, disappeared from Colorado Springs in 1987, and Brown was later found guilty officially in court for this murder. And just a little aside here about the 15-years-old thing, Colorado is one of 18 states where a child of any age can marry. 15 and younger can marry with a judge's approval, and 16 or 17-year-olds can marry with either judge's approval or parental consent. But such applications still are not common, and they represent less than, less than half of a percent of marriage applications in Colorado, and most of those are 16 and 17-year-olds. And trust me in that no super young children have ever been married in Colorado with the judge's consent, but there it is. So Robert Brown slowly began opening up about all these other murders. In 2003, he told the pen pal gang about two other murders in Texas and one in Oklahoma, and he later told them about three in his home state of Louisiana. Many states then launched investigations into his claims, and in at least six of those murders, investigators in other states corroborated some of Robert Brown's details from his confessions that basically only the murderer would have known. And if all are true then Robert Charles Brown is one of the most prolific serial killers in the United States. So at this time, I'm going to go a little bit more into Robert Brown, who to date has confessed to nine total murders in Colorado and been found guilty of two of them, Heather Don Church, the murder that he's in jail for life for, and Rocio Sperry. I have information from the affidavit about the letter exchange that reveals a bit more about the other, other murders, including um, some of the nine that he said he committed in Colorado. And this is the murder of the quote-unquote cowboy lady, is what he called her. Mr. Brown said that sometime in the spring or summer between 1990 and 1994, he had gone to Cowboys Nightclub in Colorado Springs, where he noticed a white female about 35 years of age with bleached blonde hair, about 5'6 to 5'7 tall, weighing about 120 pounds, and he stated that she was wearing a Western-style clothing. He recalled that she was drunk, and although he said that she was making her rounds around the room, he stressed that she was not a prostitute. Upon leaving the club that night, he saw Cowboy Lady hitchhiking on Academy Boulevard, um, just north of the Cowboys nightclub location in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he stated that he stopped and offered her a ride in his red Ford Ranger pickup truck. She wanted to go um, to yet another nightclub, which was lo located just west of Bennigan's Bar and Restaurant at Academy Boulevard in North Carefree. And Mr. Brown said that they danced and drank until he offered to take her to his house. And she agreed. And they went to his home and he explained that his wife at the time was visiting family in Florida. And Mr. Brown stated that um, basically they had sex and then he subsequently strangled her and that he placed her body in an unused bedroom for about two days where her body just sat in this bedroom in his home. And later on, he basically wrapped her in plastic and placed her in the back of his truck and that he, he said that he drove to an, a high off area off Gold Camp Road and just basically dumped the body off of a cliff and kept the plastic potentially for later use. Moving on, he said that he killed Lisa Lowe, 21 years old, 
who was reported missing in Arkansas on November 3rd, 1991. And her body was placed in the St. Francis River. I'll also note here, because it's unusual for a serial killer to kill outside of their own race, that Lisa Lowe is black and Robert Brown is white. So just a little bit of a tidbit that deviates from the norm. He confessed to killing Catherine Hayes, a 15-year-old from Louisiana, reported missing July 4th, 1980. Her body was placed in the Nantachi Creek. Also, Louisiana, Wanda Faye Hudson, 21 years old, reported missing May 28, 1983, and she was found dead in her apartment from stab wounds. And again in Louisiana, Faye Self, 26 years old, her remains were never found, but Brown claims to have placed them in the Red River. In Texas, 22-year-old Melody Ann Bush reported missing March 30, 1984. She curiously died from acute acetone poisoning and was placed in a drainage ditch. Again, in Texas, Nydia Mendoza, 17 years old, and reported missing February 2nd, 1984. She was killed by strangulation and disarticulated and placed in a ditch. And here's what Robert Brown himself had to say about this murder. In addition to the bolstering credence, I am mainly curious of the outcome of the following. I thought long and hard about picking an incident that would not be lost among the many others. A very small town seemed to be my best bet. Small towns don't forget such rare happenings. The town I chose is Flatonia, Texas. They don't get much smaller. The year was approximately 1984 or 1985. A young woman was killed and her body was found near this town. Last I heard was that her husband was being charged with her murder. I am curious as to the eventual outcome. Please let me know. Afterward, we may talk some more on this. Texas does like to kill people. That should give you something to think about. So in jail, Brown was additionally interviewed about the Melody Bush case, and he mentioned that he used ether to kill her. And um, he had not been given a description of how she died. So investigators thought that that was specific enough for him to know. And he just confused ether with acetone because how could you guess that she had been killed with some kind of poison like that? He also claims to have killed men. He claimed to have killed two men and set their trailer on fire in an unknown state. And he claimed to have killed two people on I-70 west of Denver. And so I cross-referenced the cold case database in Colorado in 1980 and found two men who were shot to death in their transmission repair shop vaguely west of Denver and about five blocks south of I-70. And these two men are Frank Lopez and his stepfather, Mario Horta. So here's a list of some of his other claimed murders. The terms I use in it are in his own words. 1970 to 1971, his first murder was an American GI in South Korea. 1977 to 79, kills South Philly prostitute in a New Orleans Holiday Inn. Late 1970s, kills quote-unquote Cajun lady in Morgan City, Louisiana, 1980, Lady Laid to Rest in Marshy Area near West Memphis, Arkansas. 1985, Dumped Male in the Muck near Tulsa, Oklahoma. 1986, Throws Lady Over the Precipice in Washington State. Again in 1986, Kills a Couple on the Beach in California. Here's what he had to say about this crime. We are on the Pacific Coast Highway about 200 miles north of San Francisco. There's an exit to a sandy beach where there are areas with lots of driftwood among the boulders on the north side. 
Among the boulders and driftwood are two bodies, one male and one female. This was 1986. Mr. Brown said he had driven to California along the coastal highway when he saw a sign in regard to a beach. He said he pulled into an area and recalled seeing a pile of driftwood on the north side of the beach and his intent was to spend the night. And Mr. Brown said that there were a couple uh, there who were camping and the couple asked him if he wanted to smoke a joint. He advised he talked with them for about five minutes and then shot them with the same Ruger 357 he used in Washington State. Mr. Brown said he didn't know where the couple was from, and he described the male and the female as being in their mid-20s to 30s. And he said that after he shot the couple, he went through their backpacks and he placed the bodies under some driftwood and then left the scene. In 1993, he said he shot a motorcyclist in New Mexico. So his MO of killing is all over the place. We have blunt force trauma, strangulation, stabbing, acetone poisoning, or ether. He said he's he's capable of dismembering bodies and disposing of them in any way that he sees fit. And he does it all with this surprising coolness. Unlike other serial killers, he doesn't really appear to be ritualistic. He claims in later letters that he killed women in particular who he believed to be unfaithful who he thought were sleeping around, but as he also killed men and children, he kind of just killed in this time of opportunity. And we know that this wasn't his only motive in terms of killing women that he thought were being unfaithful. He mostly just killed people that were just in his way. So who is Robert Brown? In 1952, he was born in Louisiana. In 1961, His grandfather threw himself down a well to commit suicide. And in 1963, his aunt was brutally murdered. And in 1969, he dropped out of high school and joined the army. Afterwards, he married 13-year-old Terry Laverne Ward. And in 1972, he received a bronze star in Vietnam for his service. He soon divorced Terry Laverne Ward, the young child, and he was awarded for exemplary behavior, efficiency, and fidelity from the Army, and also given outstanding service in connection with military operations against a hostile force. He then married his second wife, Tiet Minh Hun, and his father died soon after that. Robert and Minh Hun's son, Thomas, was born in 1974. And at this time, he was awarded another award for exemplary behavior from the army and then got a divorce from his second wife. He received a dishonorable discharge from the army for drug use in 1976. And in 1977, he married his third wife, Brenda Gale Ware. He took Brenda down to a remote waterway where he beat her fiercely and she barely made it out alive and then subsequently divorced him. In 1980, he married Rita Coleman. And in 1980, he strangled Rita Coleman. And she ended up in the ER where the doctor told her that her larynx was almost crushed. And in 1981, he was arrested for stealing three rolls of copper wire from Wireways Incorporated. In 1982, he was arrested for burglarizing a construction trailer belonging to International Paper Co., And he pleaded guilty to a reduced burglary and theft count and spent 45 days in jail for this. In 1984, he divorces Rita Coleman. 
And this same year, um, Nydia Mendoza's body is found in Sugarland, Texas. In 1985, he's charged with stealing a bell from a local Baptist church. In 86, he stole a Ford truck from a Ford dealership, and he took the truck to Colorado where he met up with Marjorie Miller, an old lover of his, and a man named Jack Mason. In 1986, he still continued to use marijuana and cocaine and sell it to dealers for money. In 86, he said he shot a cow for fun, slit its throat, and drank its blood. And that's one of his friends recalling that incident, Jack Mason. In 86, he was arrested and pled guilty to truck theft and resisting arrest. And he was in 18 months in prison in 86. And in 87, he was given parole, at which point he married his fifth wife, Diane Marcia Babbitts. And in 1991, Heather Dawn Church is abducted. In, 80, in 95, he had an online relationship with a woman named QT. And in, in 95, also, he was arrested for the murder of Heather Don Church, where he pled guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to life without parole. So this dude's all over the place. From the affidavit of Brown's Leather Exchange with the retiree team, he posits some interesting questions. Initially, it appears he wanted to see if he could qualify for the death penalty to be executed as soon as possible if he confessed to the murder of Rocio Perry. Many of his letters were just incredibly cryptic. And here's just one example that I found that I will read. This was July 26, 2002. Mr. Hess received this letter and Mr. Brown wrote, I must say, I am dumbfounded that with the plethora of information provided, someone hasn't deciphered such a simple and obvious message. I can only infer that, to this point, no one has truly harbored a desire to do so. Does this clarify matters? Location, murky plaza depth, cool caressing mire. Amount, seven. Instructions, drain dig. Accomplice, high priestess. Motive, sacred, virginsless, worthy, scattered. Something else that might be of interest to you. Hypothetically, if individuals were held in a concealed chamber and their caretaker was incarcerated, thereby causing these individuals to succumb over time, would the caretaker be considered guilty of murder, even though their deaths were a direct result of actions taken by law enforcement officials? I suppose three should be added to the nine. Signed, Robert Brown. So essentially what I can gather here is that he's trying to insinuate that there are three people being held somewhere that he was taking care of in Colorado that are now dead because law enforcement arrested him. (laughs) So the affidavit describing the letter exchange also reveals more about this murder of Rocio Sperry, who I've only touched on briefly, but I've mentioned a couple times. So Mr. Sperry said that when he arrived at his residence, Rocio was not there, and his 1987 white Pontiac Grand Am was also gone. And Mr. Sperry said that there was no note left behind, and he had no idea what had happened to his wife. And upon searching through their apartment for his wife's clothing, he found it all to be there, including all of her toiletries and makeup. And he said that the only thing that he found missing from his apartment was his Sony television, which he described as a gray 27-inch color television. And Mr. Sperry said that he then called the Colorado Springs Police Department but they wouldn't take a missing person report because because she hadn't been missing for 48 hours. And technically at this time, she is still a child. 
So Mr. Sperry said that after 48 hours, he again contacted the Colorado Springs Police Department to report her missing. The only other bit of information was that uh, Mr. Sperry said that one of his neighbors, Laura Tucker, said that she had last seen uh, Rocio Sperry walking toward the convenience store on Murray Boulevard in the mid-afternoon. So of all these things taken together that I've mentioned here, including the murder of Heather Dawn Church, which was just one of the most senseless, ridiculous murders that I think I've covered. One of the most chilling things that I find about Robert Charles Brown is just his completely casual demeanor this entire time. He's almost like a Henry Lee Lucas. He didn't confess to the absurd number of murders that Lucas did, but he's truly this wandering murderer who just murders whoever gets between him and what he wants, such as was the case with Heather Don Church, who, where he didn't even steal anything from her home. And he stole a TV from Rossio Sperry's home, and he killed her in the process. And he just kills anyone who comes in his path. And so that is the story of Heather Don Church, murdered by potential prolific serial killer and potentially one of the most prolific serial killers in the United States, Robert Charles Brown. So that is the case for today. Thanks for being patient, everybody. I'm going to have some pictures up on my Instagram at Colored Red Podcast. And if you check out my Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Colored Red Podcast and donate just $1 per month, you will get a card and sticker from me. So thanks, guys. Until next time.